and that was my dinner with with wine for the rest of the night. Ugh. Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> you are considered going to therapy. No, what for? Oh, nothing. Just to brag about how great my life is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is Project A Plus, the podcast, um, where we talk about movies. Uh, one, a movie that is currently right now in what? Not theaters on... No, no, Netflix. <laughs> uh, and the other one, a recurring series of films. Uh, this week and for the past three weeks, we've been discussing the films of Nagisa Oshima. Um, and this will be our final week doing so. We will wrap up our series with In the Realm of the Senses, Empire of Passion, and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I'm not sure if I said the name of the other movie we're doing because <laughs> I'm very unprofessional, uh, which is. Hold the Dark, directed by Jeremy Saulnier. Is that is that good? Yeah, it's great. I love it. It's one of my favorite films. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Me talking about the films we're watching. Oh, oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. Great introduction. Okay, thank you. It's probably as good an introduction as Hold the Dark is as a film. Is <laughs> a film? Wow, that's some high praise. Yeah. So, do you have anything other, any other uh, fucking horseshit you want to talk about, or should we uh, <laughs> just stop in? Hey, hey, don't try and make this a structured thing. It's it's freeform. So, uh, do we hop into my uh, carefully written summary of All the Dark? Should we contextualize this for the audience and say that uh, I instructed the pair of us, including myself, to forego our usual stumbling attempts to synopsize films by pre-writing a little something. I did not specify like <laughs> that we had to write an essay <laughs> carefully an introducing essay. Oh my the Lord. themes and moods of this. <laughs> Man, why don't you just go fuck yourself? <laughs> so do you want me to start fucking doing this <laughs> or what? Yeah. Uh, which film? What, what are we doing? Okay. So our unless, first film wait, we'll be discussing unless, today. Unless before Shut we, up. No, no, no. Unless before we get into the, the film, there's something like there's some exciting anecdote that has happened in your life that you can share. <laughs> Um, nope. <laughs> what about you? So I was, I was in the supermarket the other day and this was, a, this was a few weeks ago. So this was like early September and they had already put out their Christmas mince pie selection, including the brand I favor, which is Mr. Kipling from England, which in my opinion is, is the best mince pie you can get and gourmet mince pies be damned. I'm sure you could make a better homemade one, but I don't care what super expensive bakery you go to you can't beat this particular blend of delicious mints and spices contained within mr kipling's mince pies so i had to buy it and i was like so i considered that the beginning of the christmas season for me it's good so they're four dollars right so i've I've tested the the various types of mince pies and weighed them (laughs) against my budget so you can get like a dollar mince A dollar fifty mince pie packets, right? Uh, that that are like the home brand that the supermarket produces, and there's two rival supermarkets right next to each other on the on the street near me, and I've tested both of them, and I will say for the record that the Woolworths one is probably better than the the Coles one, which which have Do you know, really Hugh, really we malleable. don't have mince pies in the United States, so I I could not care. Less. Is that not a thing in the United States? <laughs> no, 
Oh my god, they're so good. Like the, It's the taste of Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds like it. Have you ever had them? No, because they don't have them in the United States. <laughs> really? Is it like a British thing in particular? Yeah. Maybe they call them something else, because some, sometimes they're called mince tarts. No, no. I'll just read you the Wikipedia article that I pulled up because I was so bored. A mince pie is a sweet pie of British origin, filled with a mixture of dried fruits and spices called mincemeat. It is traditionally served during the Christmas season in the English-speaking world, excluding the USA. You should try it. You should import some. (laughs) Oh, I should make my own. You can make your own, yeah. I'm not going to do that. It's just... Yeah, so I... I, um... I tested out, as I was saying, the Coles ones and the, and the Woolworths one, which is the two big supermarket chains. Um, <clears throat> and the way that they can obviously afford to uh, sell them so cheaply is by cutting the cost somewhere. So they're not in a cardboard packaging, for one thing. They're just in a plastic what? packaging. Uh, okay. Um, the Woolworth one tries to save even more money by just having a latticework design on the top. So it's not like a f- covered in a full pastry sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that being said, it is better than the Coles one, which is covered in a full pastry sheet. But it's not even like hard. Like you bite into it, it just it just gives straight away. There needs to be some crispness in the outer shell, I believe, for a good mince pie. Which is something that the Mister Kipling one, which is a bit more expensive at four dollars, achieves ably. Uh, so I, I I I would have a box of these. Um, and the way I can rationalize splurging on this $4 packet of, uh, mince pies, which has six mince pies in each packet is that I would have one for breakfast every morning. And that would be my entire breakfast. It's one mince pie and a coffee. Um, so then obviously that, that lasts for six breakfasts, which is pretty good for $4, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, you want to know more? Okay. Um, <laughs> So I did, I bought, I, I, I had to buy it. So I've tried all these three. I bought a Coles one, I bought the Woolworths one, and Mr. Pickle. And I tried them. Sorry. So officially, I'm in Christmas oh mode. God. Well, it's uh, been 40, almost 45 minutes, and we've not discussed either of the four films we're talking about today. All right, so Hunter, I believe you've written some <laughs> material about Hold the Dark. I'm not even like, excited to read this long paragraph that I wrote now. I'm just going to like go through it half-heartedly. Paragraph? You mean fucking thesis? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Ready? Yes. Come a little bit closer And feel my character Yeah, come a little bit closer We'll hold the dark We'll hold the dark Baby, we will hold the dark So, our first film were to discuss today if we can discuss anything besides fucking nonsense is hold the dark now hold the dark is the latest attempt by netflix to fetch cinephiles by producing movies that hold a certain prestige by dinner with their makers that wouldn't presumably be made otherwise in what this the case f- the makers <laughs> 
So let me read this. Oh, my God. All right. I already feel embarrassed enough reading this to you. Right, just yeah, let me sorry, read it. Sorry. <laughs> Fuck you. Now I'm not needing to do it. I'm just going to make some stuff up. Ready? No, 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 no. no. I'm sorry. No, you're not. <laughs> okay. Hold in the Dark is the latest attempt by Netflix to fet cinephiles producing movies that hold a certain prestige by dinner of their makers that wouldn't presumably be made otherwise. In this case, the makers in question are director Jeremy Saulnier and writer-actor Megan Blair, are best known for their past collaborations, Green Room and Blue Ruin, and, in Blair's case, the Sundance hit and previous Netflix film, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Both of those films contain a certain limited scope which provides their power and tension. Hold the Dark, on the other hand, putatively represents the expansion of their narrative and thematic spheres. The film begins with the disappearance. A small Alaskan village, the son of Medora Stone, played by Riley Keogh, vanishes into the woods, apparently taken by wolves by a pack of wolves who have also abducted several other children from the village. Into these, water wades, into these waters wades Russell Kaur, played by Jeffrey Wright, a naturalist famed for living and studying wild wolves. Kaur has been summoned to the village by Medora, who wants him to find the remains of her son, so that she has something to show to her husband, who is returning from a tour of duty in Iraq. As Kaur heads off in search of the Sloan's son, the film shifts to Vernon Sloan, played by Alexander Skarsgård, who is introduced mercilessly killing a group of Iraqi soldiers and generally seems like a total lunatic and a psychopath. Vernon is now is non-mortally wounded and quickly jetted back to the States, putting him on a collision course with Corps and local police officer Donald Mar- Merriam, played by James Badgedale. From this narrative seed, Saulnier spins an ever-enlarging web of potential wolf cults, weird sex, and uh, sort of... Uh, kind of offensive Native American spirituality. Now, Hugh, both of us had problems with many other Netflix original films that we've watched. From The Bland, The Titan, do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. Can <laughs> yeah, you good. explain the plot to that? No, I it? can't. I'm sorry. I'm it's sorry. the same style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll get right on it. Um, to The Misguided, War Machine, and To The Plain Disappointed, Okja, all of which seemed to iron out the interesting kinks that guided that guided their filmmakers' previous works. So, is Hold the Dark the film that breaks the Netflix curse and continues Saunier's hot streak, or does it get lost in its own murk? Was that, was that good? Wow. <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> I know there's nothing there's nothing there's nothing at all wrong with what you've written. The 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 funny thing here, listeners, is uh how we interpreted what we'd agreed to on the previous episode in, in two very different ways. <laughs> Literally all I was trying to do was like prevent in particular myself from stumbling through some torturous explanation, uh which I was finding tiresome to edit together. Because uh, what what we had been doing previously um, is when we were synopsizing these films live to air, live to tape, rather, uh, we would have like the Wikipedia page in front of us and we would sort of stumble through some bad explanation of the plot while trying to rephrase the words that Wikipedia had already used. <laughs> At least that was my experience doing it myself. <laughs> no, the worst, the worst thing was... The, the way I would do it is I would start doing it just, like, off the dome, right? And then I would forget something and then fill up Wikipedia in the middle of speaking and try to, like, 
<laughs> so yeah, so some so sometimes it was just like it was a lot of work in the edit for not much reward because we were really just saying this like bland explanation of the, the film. So I thought, well, let's let's save time in preparation for the next episode and just write it out quickly. And I literally meant like something that was pretty much the same as what we were doing before, but already written out, so I didn't have to edit together this nonsense. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't take me that long to write that. I sort of point that out. My, again, we can argue about which, which approach is better when you see my, my shitty approach. But my, uh, uh, intent was that it would still technically sound like where. But it fucking show you would to sound natural. Yeah. It's in like, it wouldn't necessarily sound like, oh, here's something I prepared earlier. And then it's like a speech. Why, why is it better? I don't know. Who, who gives a shit? This podcast is always going to be garbage. <laughs> no, no, this is the greatest podcast that's ever been made. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I always forget. It's 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 on that precipice between being the greatest podcast that's been made or not a garbage. It's like, it's something this ambitious, you know, it's either going to be either. So, Hugh, do you think Hold the Dark breaks the Netflix curse that we've experienced, or does it get lost in its own darkness? I mean, it's probably not the worst Netflix original film we've seen. <laughs> Yeah, but we've seen quite a few bad ones, so that's not really much of a compliment. No, no, but I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, yeah, you've got to say something positive before you can say something negative, right? Should we do the shit sandwich approach, where we start with something positive, then go into the shit, and then close it off with a nice little comment? I never understood that, because I, I, mean, I feel like the bread in the shit sandwich would become bad by virtue of it being touchy shit, but... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make it any less shit. I just... <laughs> But no, I just, I just understand it as a metaphor. It's like you start with something good, and then it's not how you eat sandwiches either. Like it's all at once. Well, no, I could. You could see it working this way. The first slice of bread, right, <laughs> is okay because it's just bread at that point. Like you're assembling the sandwich, so you're you're putting the bread down, and and it's like they're like, okay, so here's some bread. Bread's good. You like bread. And then now I'm putting some <laughs> shit on top of the bread. But then I think when you get to the last slice. That's not a good slice of bread, right? Because that's just closing <laughs> but, off a shit sandwich. But, but also, I, I don't understand who I'm feeding this sandwich to in that case. So, because we both watched Green Room 2. Do you want to include our discussion of Green Room here? Or I didn't know they made the, a sequel to that. Please shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because I think it makes sense to talk about a bit about what we think about Jeremy Saulnier in general, maybe. Yes, I agree. So before we get to hold the dark, because we yeah. both purposely went back and watched some of his previous filmography in order to give we us a better his perspective <laughs> on uh, this film. Yeah, uh, and you would you've already seen Blue Ruin, or at least uh, a so I've, portion of I've it. seen most of Blue Ruin. <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, is that like a like a, I did stopped watching it because it was terrible, or a another thing? No, why did you I, not see? It? I didn't stop watching it because I hated it um there was something that that prevented me from finishing it at the time because i was watching it on a, a tv or something or a stream on on the tv channel and i think i had planned to maybe go back and finish watching it uh when i had a chance but i never bothered um which is partly a reflection on my uh, waning interest in the narrative i think so I, I can't really i can't really judge that fairly because i don't know how it entirely wraps up but obviously you didn't it wasn't entirely compelling yeah i mean my my thing was it like it was com definitely competently produced like you can see that that uh, uh yeah he de de definitely seems like a proficient like craftsman and i this is something that i only found out when i was reading reviews of a green room but he actually started as a cinematographer 
Oh, which definitely shows, I think. So Blue Ruin does get you in by the nature of its premise and and the way that initially unfolds, which is is the idea of this person who seems entirely unsuited to violent revenge, trying to get vigilante justice after the death of his father. I think it is from memory. The the type of character that they've chosen to put in in that situation, I find that quite interesting as a premise, and I think there's potential there. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that theme of like having like sort of um, an amateurish or like a someone who's like not like used to violence committing it is like something that extends through all of his films. Yeah, yeah, definitely putting someone who's yeah not not like a natural you know Liam Neeson type into these type of scenarios. And then, and so that was, that was, that was Macon Blair in, in Blue Ruin, um, who appears in all his films, uh, in some. Yeah. Capacity. And they're like buddies with them. Yeah. So the, the, the thing, the thing I like about them just learning from their backstory, they were part of like a, a, a filmmaking sort of collective of friends from high school and, and stuff like that. And they'd been doing this for years and, um, Blue Ruin was after they did Murder Party and it didn't get the prestige they were hoping for um blue room was like their final attempt at filmmaking before they potentially just gave it up and got on with their lives um, so i kind of enjoy that backstory that it is just these these group of friends that have yeah scrappy scrappy guys and i like the i like the specific part of their backstory that they're both from virginia the state where i'm from and that macon blair went to school in my hometown and also uh, i was not I don't know, like, Blue Run got a lot of acclaim when it came out, and I didn't watch it because I lived in Virginia and sometimes Pennsylvania then, which do not does not have access to uh, a wealth of independent theaters. So it's hard, kind of hard to watch art house films um, when they're being released. I mean, it was, it was, like, at the cusp where everything just comes to streaming, too. So it, it was not a film that was accessible to me, and I just sort of uh, it dropped off my radar um, for that reason. Uh, but I will admit that my interest in it has peaked significantly ever since learning that it's it was shot mostly in Virginia. So, <laughs> um, so the main thing I want to say about Blue Ruin is that I was I was intrigued by the premise and I thought it had potential. Um, but I, at a certain point in the narrative, I wasn't really enjoying how it ended up playing out, and it sort of got convoluted and a bit silly. So then we both watched uh, Green Room. Yes, his previous film. Um, and probably the reason I was excited to do Hold the Dark and the reason I wanted to do it on the show, period, is because of the really positive notices that both Blue Ruin and Green Room had gotten. And then I watched Green Room, and I will admit that my excitement was, like, a little deflated. But I still think I enjoyed Green, Green Room as an experience. Um, would you agree with that? Even if I think, as you said about Blue Ruin, where it sort of uh, it didn't play out, play out in a way that you found entirely satisfying, I kind of felt the same thing about Green Room. For various reasons. Um, but did you share that opinion or do you were you more positively kind to it? So I sort of had a similar feeling to, to what I did with Blue Ruin, uh, which was exactly that, which was like, I kind of like what he's, the pieces that he's assembled for this film, which is the idea of this hardcore band yeah, being stuck in this green room of this sort of neo-Nazi punk scene um, and, you know, having to survive or fight their way out somehow and, and getting into this sort of horrific situation and Patrick Stewart is involved. Uh, they're, they're all relatively compelling elements, I think, to put yeah. together. But again, at a certain point, I was uh, I didn't find the way it ended up playing out especially interesting. Yes. There are some really fantastically tense... Or there's like one fantastically tense sequence, though. 
Like I think the the machete to the arm bit was 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 like the peak of of all that tension. I think, and then it, after that, I wasn't that interested. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then it just sort of is like, hmm. Yeah, I will, I will. My interest was peaked up very much when uh, Patrick Stewart gets shot his bald dome head. <laughs> Spoilers, <laughs> I guess, because <laughs> just like the squib just still tracking really got shot, and I was like, oh boy. <laughs> what did you? I actually, I kind of disliked Patrick Stewart, which I was not expecting. I didn't really like his performance that much. It sounded like he was trying to do an accent. That's what I, I don't know what to say besides that. It just sounded like Patrick Stewart, who has obviously a very distinctive voice, just trying to do an accent. Yeah, it didn't... It, it, it was one of those accents where, like, for many lines, you're like, wait, is he attempting to do an accent or not? Like, I'm not actually sure. <laughs> he should have just done his voice. That's how I feel about almost every character. Because I, I just can't imagine how difficult it must be to, like, maintain an accent and give a performance at the same time. So yeah, screen room, kind of slightly disappointing, but enjoyable nonetheless, I'd say. Um, so what did you think of Hold the Dark? Let's start with the title, which is a terrible title, although it is the title of the book itself. Why would you ever want to title something that evokes the disastrous Spider-Man musical Turn Off the Dark? That's all I could think of. So that's why. <laughs> that's also, that's such a bizarre name. <laughs> what does that mean? And especially because the name sounds like it's like it's a Batman play or something. Like it's yeah, you know, it does. Spider Man's not known for for his darkness. Yeah, except for that one comic series where he killed his wife with his radioactive semen. Really? <laughs> Do you not know about this? No. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna make one more digression, and then we can start talking about Hold the Dark. <laughs> my my Spider Man controversy knowledge ends with the clones business. Yeah. Okay. This is a bit beyond this. But um, there was like a some hack did like a you know like the bat the dark the bat the bat knight uh, the dark knight rises sort of Frank Miller uh, sort of future story with Spider Man called I think it's called Spider Man Rain or something like that and uh, one of the central plot elements is that um, Mary Jane has been long dead and uh, eventually you find out the reason is because Spider Man is radioactive semen. <laughs> This is treated very seriously within the text of the comic book, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like, he's, like, on her grave and, like, having, like, flashbacks. It's like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, there you go. Uh, anyway, so, um, I'd say about the same level of being killed by radioactive semen is watching all the time. The opening sections of this film, set in this ominous uh, Alaskan remote town... We have Saunier borrowing from the Shining playbook somewhat by having aerial shots of the car driving through heavily forested area, which is a trick he also used in Green Room, if you remember in the early scenes of that. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm assuming he achieves it via drone in, in these pictures. And then that sort of foreboding atmosphere is coupled with some of the worst portentous dialogue I've heard this year, I would say. In which he has these like agonizing exchanges with the with the woman who has um, called on his help, and by he I mean the wonderfully named Russell Core. <laughs> <laughs> All the names in this movie are fucking terrible. So they have these horrible exchanges, like uh, they're they're talking about the fact that her child has been taken by this wolf, apparently. And um, she says something like, "Oh, I I know you think this is probably the natural order, don't you?" And he's like, oh, the natural order doesn't warrant revenge. And that's 
sort of garbage lines like that. Like each of the lines land with the weight of a thousand clunks. Yeah. Uh, and I particularly, <laughs> I kind of enjoyed this just because of how like sloppy it was, but the way they set up the Russell core character played by Jeffrey Wright, um, the, the fact that he's this like author who writes books about wolves and has this, this obsession with, with wolves, the way they demonstrate that visually is they have this pan through his apartment where he's just been painting all these pictures of wolves. And, and like, I just enjoy that sort of character building detail. Well, he's a wolf guy. He's clearly, he's written a book about a wolf. He paints wolves. Great. That's settled. I like that it's never like, uh, established exactly what his relationship with wolves is dude he it's so weird it's like vague because it's like is he like a novelist or did he like is he a naturalist yeah so i just i was i was making some uh extrapolations when i wrote that summary they talk about like uh a previous experience he had where he had to kill a wolf and he found it painful to do but i didn't actually understand why but like when he goes into the arctic like you know the environment like he seems completely unprepared so i was like what what are they trying to suggest here? Like, is he, does he know what he's doing or not? You know? What did you think of the uh, various performances of this film? Because I have to say, I was actually, like, really disappointed. Because I like Jeffrey Wright, like, quite a bit. Yeah, I think Jeffrey Wright is is a great actor. But he's he's given such a limited role here that, that I don't think anyone could have done anything with this role. No. Um, and, like, it's, it's just a shame that, like, this is, like, the lead role that he's been given. Is this bad, boring movie. There, was, there wasn't really any, any like kernel of an idea that i found particularly interesting here but at least felt like it was going for one thing initially like okay this is what the film is going to be going moving towards it's set up as this mystery that's like did the wolves take this child but this sort of resolved like within the within the first like 30 minutes essentially yeah so after his excursion into the wilds to to find these these this pack of wolves um he returns to the woman's home and she has left and packed her things and he descends into the basement, which is mysteriously unlocked, and discovers the strangled body of the child. Yes. I guess, like, what the film wants you is to be compelled as to, like, why did she kill this child and what's up with the husband? Like, those are the two uh, sort of things it wants to replace that mystery with. But neither of them are particularly interesting, (laughs) especially not Alexander Sarsgaard, who's like... Goodness, no. The sequence that you mentioned in your introduction, uh, in which he's in uh, Iraq... And he wanders around. It doesn't have a line of dialogue. I did get sort of uh, PTSD flashbacks of the film Mute. <laughs> the best film. And the film War Machine sort of mixed together in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Two previous yeah. <laughs> Netflix original films. <laughs> in this, somehow I feel like the uh, portrayal of rape in this movie is somehow worse. Because <laughs> it's just like, why, why is that scene included at all? Like you could literally cut it out and, and like it would not change the film at all. <laughs> We, we randomly cut to Skarsgård in Iraq. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> and the first introduction of him is him manning the gun on this tank or, or the, t- the top of a car. And he mows down these people. And then the next act that we see him perform is to save uh, an Iraqi woman who's being raped by an American soldier by stabbing the, the guy and giving her the knife so she can finish him off. Um, and that's, I guess, supposed to, yeah, give him some moral nuance, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it does not do so. It just seems really gross and exploitative. Kind of like the, how the film uses uh, other female nudity, too. <laughs> Which is also, like, just completely, like, meaningless. 
And it gets, but I feel like it, there's like a, a specific scene where <laughs> Russell Core <laughs> is, <laughs> is spending the night at the, their house and um, <laughs> the uh, wife comes in and just like, oh, I guess she's naked now. Okay, great. <laughs> she's wearing a wolf mask. Like, I feel like a better film, it would be conveyed in this like way that makes it seem like really mysterious and like creepy, but it just seems like, hey, you know, look at some breast, you, you male gaze, man. <laughs> You know, the Jeffrey Wright character Russell Core is so like reserved as a character that you don't even really gauge how he reacts to things. Like he just, he just sort of barely moves. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously that's that's supposed to be like it's written into the character, but it's just it's just too much reservedness. Because like we we all talk about another movie that has a lot of um, sort of emotional repression later, and that film that will not be named. <laughs> it's a much better job of conveying the inner life of its, lives of its characters, I think. Yeah, I, th- I, think it, I think that's a good way of putting it. We don't really get a sense of much of his inner life except by some of the dumb, portentous things he ends up saying. And there is there is a tendency in, in many works of this type to uh, replace character development with just the fact that he has an estranged wife and kids. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like an 80s cop movie almost, <laughs> or like uh, Insomnia. I feel like this film is just like bad Insomnia. Mm, mm. In in both senses. <laughs> Was there any part of the movie that you enjoyed? Because I didn't really, did, nothing really worked here for me. No, I found it pretty much a slog all the way through. Yeah, I was kind of like... I kind of enjoyed how like dumb and bad it was at a certain point. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be, oh yeah, of course you're going to shoot an arrow through that guy's neck. Great. Don't care. Oh man, he's got a, this guy's got a pregnant wife. I wonder if he'll be dead by the end of this movie. Oh, yep. <laughs> Come on. What do you think of the soundtrack? Because like there's, there's several scenes that seem to want to um, create an atmosphere or specific like sort of haunting mood just by using the soundtrack. And it's mostly composed of, like, just, like, some sense with a bunch of, like, uh, uh, over it. Yeah, ominous, ominous ambient synth and occasional orchestral touches with the... And then sometimes Hound Zimmer pounding for certain scenes. <laughs> and then grunts. Don't forget the grunts. And grunts, yeah. Some exo- <laughs> some stupid exoticism. <laughs> I, did, I did find that the grunts were pretty pretty funny, I'll say. But so, so Sonia seems to work with the same team of people uh, film to film which i guess is a legacy of of that collective that he was working with so he's, yeah. he's got the same editor the same people doing the music um but yeah that the score was was exactly that uh i mean it, it it's part of the film <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not even worse than the rest of the movie yeah it's just it's another element <laughs> there's one scene in particular i can't remember the the context of it, but it's like alexander scars is like doing something mysterious right and it just like really starts going into grunt overload and i was just like this is so funny <laughs> it's just so failing to meet the uh what it's trying to do wow nepotism uh the the soundtrack was composed by making blair's brothers so we've we talked about this with 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 Sonia's previous films the idea of placing this character um, who is not equipped for violent combat in situations where they have to have to deal with yes. it. Yes. And this film continues that trend, but in a much less interesting fashion. Uh, but it, to a lesser degree. It sort of could have been interesting, especially with Jeffrey Wright and the idea of this more intellectual character who is more akin to writing 
But that doesn't quite come off because he's also apparently, you know, skilled in trekking out into into the wilderness to fight wolves or whatever, or find wolves. <laughs> he's a war fighter. <laughs> so I, I think this film... That's the movie should have been gone. This film would be more interesting if, if he was more of an academic and Jeffrey Wright got more to do with the character. And then he was put in this situation where he's completely out of his comfort zone or something. Like, like give him, like, way more V-neck sweaters and, like... Like collar shirts under V-neck sweaters, and like patches on his on his shoulders, <laughs> yeah, yeah, on his elbows. <laughs> like, how much better would it be if he was just like researching something? And he just came across this like, yeah, yeah. We're making a good version of this movie, <laughs> <laughs> or at least a better version. But yeah, I don't even like what. What do you think this movie was trying to like accomplish? I, I can't got, even I, like. I, that's why I find it so unfocused because I don't understand. Like, it throws bits and pieces in there that it seems to think is like so amazing and intriguing, yeah. and then abandons them and it doesn't really cohere into anything and i think one of the one of the elements is is that whole stuff that you uh, said in your introduction was perhaps offensive in its depiction of uh, native american yeah. spiritualism which <laughs> i would say yes is offensive did you watch on behalf of native americans who you speak for when that woman turned but, up and was like, "You should turn back. There's evil in these parts." I'm like, "Jesus Christ!" Did you ever watch? Did you did you watch the X Files? Yeah, that's what it reminded me of. Like the later seasons of the X Files were really got into like some offensive Native American stereotypes. That's what it reminded me of. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just like a bunch of dumb nonsense. And then it pivots to that because the the character who completes the shootout. Or yeah, it's, it's like a sequel. This is like the uh, set piece of the film. Like it, it's like the um, if like the the green room stuff in green room was like the set piece of that film. This is like the violent spectacle scene in this movie. And it's weird that that is like a set the centerpiece of this film when it doesn't really relate to anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it like tries to build this story around the the disenfranchisement of this person who I'm assuming is of Native American heritage themselves taking out their their um, anger about the situation on a bunch of cops who go to his house to arrest him. Hey, fair enough, you know. But but that's not really in the rest of the film. Like, that's not... Like, I can imagine that being the centerpiece of a film about him, but it's not about him. No, it's, and he's like, his his motives, his, like, desires are completely subservient to, like, Alexander Sarsour's character. Who's, who's the most Aryan person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because they dyed Riley Keogh's hair blonde, so maybe that was intentional. Mm. I, and I feel like even the sequences that I would normally get enjoyment from, like the aforementioned like violent children, are just kind of airless. Yeah, it's so it's handsomely produced. The problem begins mainly with the screenplay, which I think is terrible. It does not make me excited to watch Making Players' other film. Do you, have any, do you have any concluding thoughts for Hold the Dark? Ah, so the one thing I appreciated, the narrative didn't culminate in Russell Clore somehow killing the Skarsgård character and being like the last survivor guy. The fact that they just got away was like, all right. <laughs> I was like, that's, this is so dumb. At least that's something. No, it's just a bad anti-climax. I mean, I can imagine that kind of climax working if it had realized what the themes it wanted to explore quite were and explored them. Yeah, I... I just found it to be inexplicable, like, what happens at the end of this movie. I feel like it was, like... I, it's, like, it's like sometimes when I watch a, a film that I don't have, like, the correct historical or, like, uh, philosophical background for it, I'm just, like... I, I can tell that this is a symbol for something, but... 
<laughs> I have no idea what. But I'm not. I'm not going to attribute the same like um, generosity of intention or meaning that I'm going to attribute to some other pals. No, but I, I think just on the the fact that they at least avoided wrapping it up in the way it could have been wrapped up, just having like a final fight out sort of thing. I was like, well, at least that's at least I didn't have to sit through that. So. <laughs> yeah, all I just sit through was a bunch of other stupid shit. Next time you strangle me, don't stop. Next time you strangle me, don't stop. Okay, so I believe it is your turn to set up our next film. Uh, where we continue our Nagasa Oshima marathon. Yes, this is our concluding segment on the films of Nagasa Oshima. After Oshima's sort of heyday in the 60s, when he, he first um, came to fruition as, as a notable Japanese film director, there were some changes in the production of films in Japan that made it increasingly difficult for him to secure financing for the films that he wanted to make. Uh, I was actually I was reading a essay that he wrote... In the, that he wrote in the 80s. Um, and I think it's just because film production really slowed down post-70s. And the types of films they were willing to make changed drastically, and, and it didn't really find much room for Oshima's type of film. Yeah, because, like, essentially, I mean, the reason that the... And part of the new wave flourished, as far as I can tell, is that um, studios just wanted to pump out movies. <laughs> and they were willing to give people, like, a shot. Like, that's why Seiji Suzuki has directed so many films, for instance. For instance. Um, so it meant that directors like Oshima uh, had to secure their funding outside of Japan. So in the case of In the Realm of the Senses, uh, it was actually financed at least partly by French investors. So In the Realm of the Senses tells the story of a hotel maid and former prostitute, Sada Abe, played by Eiko Matsuda, who gets into a physical relationship with a married man staying in the hotel, played by Tatsuo Fuji. Um, the relationship develops from mutual attraction and intensifies to the point where the man leaves his wife and the woman begins integrating sadomasochistic acts, or rather, sada masochistic acts. <laughs> and, um, sada masochistic acts. And uh, autoerotic asphyxiation into their sexual activities. That's, that's the important one. Hmm. And she fantasizes about strangling and, and castrating him as a means of both physical pleasure and to prevent him from leaving her and returning to his wife. And uh, ultimately, she fulfills both of these desires. <laughs> and he, he, he somewhat consents to them as well. <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of entirely consents. <laughs> At times he doesn't seem like that pleased about it, but he's, he's like, yeah, just do it. <laughs> He definitely, he definitely says kill me, so... Yeah, yeah. The story is based on an actual case uh, from 1930s Japan. Yeah, the, the historical bit uh, is much different than the, than the film. Um, and the, the historical story, interestingly, at the time, caught the public imagination to such an extent that the real uh, Sada Abe received a reduced sentence for her crimes. A lot of people were sympathetic to her case in Japan. And um, the interesting thing about this is the reason that Oshima speculated as to why that story did capture the, the public imagination and sympathy like it did was the fact that it represented a woman acting on her own personal individualistic desires in the context of this 
rising militarism and nationalism in Japan at the time in the 30s. Um, and that is a theme that Oshima integrates into the this film and uh, even the next parallel film, Empire of Passion. To a sort of a lesser extent. Than yes, but, but both of these films do have that, that integration into it, which I think is an interesting um, way of looking at this film. Anyway, that's my introduction to In the Realm of the Senses. So were you in the realm of the enjoyment <laughs> when you're watching this one? I feel like this is a film um, sort of like some of his other films that we watched that I thought was really interesting to watch, but I didn't find to be extremely emotionally engaging, except for the end sequence, which is like uh, almost like transcendent, <laughs> I think. Um, and obviously, like, I respect the film for pushing so many boundaries. Right, or maybe I should have mentioned the fact that it's its depiction of sex is explicit to the extent where it is unable to be screened in Japan due to their censorship laws. Yes. And I feel like, I feel like that element of it would, if I were, um, Japanese would make the film more subversive, mm. uh, but as an American who has been inundated by pornography since I was a young child, <laughs> I didn't find, I mean, except for the instinct, which is just so, and there, and, and there are some like really bizarre and shocking sequences too. But the specific, like, unsimulated sex scenes I didn't find to be that, like, shocking or even that, like, interesting. But I, I still respect him for, like, wanting to go out into that, like, very taboo intersection between, like, pornography and art. Um, and I think this film is really interesting to me, friend. And I read some essays that I, I agree with to a certain extent where I didn't, like, this film does not feel that pornographic to me. No, it doesn't to me either. But, I mean, so much of the sex is framed in such a way that it it doesn't seem like the viewer has an active role in, in the visual pleasure, if that makes any sense. No, yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like the point of the scene, at least, is to arouse the audience or titillate them or, or even to necessarily shock them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's some sequences, like, especially at the end. And, but, like, and there's that one scene where... Um, <laughs> We're getting into some graphic territory, but uh, where uh, Ade dips some various pieces of food into her. Um, yeah, I think that's that scene and the, the final one have a different purpose about them. But there's a lot of just incidental sex. By what you mean, like, the entirety of this film? <laughs> like, it's pretty much all sex scenes. Um, but yeah, I would say that this is a film that I would say I respected. And I guess just respected more than I necessarily like enjoyed on like an emotional level what would you say about it <laughs> i liked it a lot actually oh really i wouldn't necessarily say i was like emotionally invested by it in the way maybe you're suggesting yeah but i mean maybe, maybe that's not it i mean you know ashima is obviously about uh, yeah he's not he's not the most tender director but i think this this is some of his most tender work yeah i guess i would agree with that like it's definitely it's definitely felt that has a lot more um or sexuality is given a lot more positive connotations than in something like uh, Dire Vishinjuku Thief or any of his other films. <laughs> it's especially refreshing to to have a male protagonist, especially compared to Oshima's other films, who's who's so focused on female pleasure. Yeah, it is. It, it is It is very refreshing. I would agree And then that. it's only soured by the scene in which he rapes like a... Hotel maid for yeah. chastising him about their sexual proclivities. What did you make of the scene where um, he has sex with an old woman? <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> that was great. 
he he thought it was weird because it was like he was having sex with his dead mum. Yeah. <laughs> and she pisses herself. Yeah. <laughs> this is why we're so well equipped to discuss this type <laughs> of film. Yeah. Because we're definitely not just children. <laughs> but yeah, I totally I I agree that especially at the in the during the end where he's like because I think I feel like the way the film is set up is that um, he is initially more like willful and expressive about his sexuality than she is, and then towards the end of the film, she becomes a sort of more dominant sexual partner. I mean, she's the more dominant partner, like very early on. I would say. Yeah, I, would guess, I guess that's true. Like, uh, there's like, so there's initial scenes where she first. So the the film opens with um, another maid of of the hotel that she's working in, coming onto her physically. And then realizing that um, she's like, oh, you're not into that. Oh, well, then you should look at this guy. So they go over to another room and watch this married man have sex with his wife. <laughs> yeah. And I will I will say that the, the scene where uh, the film like, sort of revealed itself is like pretty shocking in a way. Because, I don't know, because like, obviously going to this film, it's impossible not to know that it... I mean, I guess it's not impossible. But the, the average viewer who watches this film, I think is going to know that uh, the sex scenes are unsimulated, right? But not necessarily to the degree to which they are unsimulated. At least I was not certain of this. You know what I mean? Because I assumed it was just be the main actors, right? But the this sort of shot, which, like, cuts from... It's just, like, this pan across their bodies, right? Which just reveals that it's, like, <laughs> they're having, like, uh, unsimulated sex. It's just such, like, a like shocking scene to me. I don't know. It's, like, really, like, whoa. It, was, like, it really put me off off guard. She she's the one who first ogles him in that sense. Like yes, she first yes. develops a physical attraction without his knowledge of it. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of I mean this film is it has a lot of like sort of um, almost like audience surrogate or like characters that are meant to like make the audience aware that they're watching these two people have sex. I think yes, because they they very often perform uh, openly in front of performers that were openly in front of other people, usually like maids and, and geishas in in these hotels that they stay in. I mean, it's almost exclusively women. Oshim is both acknowledging the voyeurism of this film itself and what the audience is doing, but also the fact that the lead characters are exhibitionists. They actually like the fact that other people are watching in in, in that sense. And it, it and there's there's uh, some degree to which that their sort of sexual um, freeness like inspires other people to pursue their own sexual desires too. Like in both the scene that we were laughing about where he has sex with the old woman and uh, there's this weird scene where all these geishas just start having sex with each other mm. <laughs> after watching watching them after they had this like weird mock wedding ceremony. And I, th- I think the, the two lead performances in this film were like incredibly striking. I think Eiko Matsuda, and this was her first notable film work. And it was kind of like, and I, guess, I mean, it speaks to the double uh, standard of the um, Japanese film industry, but... I mean, she didn't really have much of a career after this. No, but she's amazing in this. I think yeah, she's she the is. standout performance. She's really good. She's really good. Um, Tatsuro Fuji was already an established actor. Uh, and and he, he has a supporting role in Black Sun, uh, which I think is the only other film I might have seen him in before Empire of Passion, that is. Um, and he's really good. But yeah, I think she's she's particularly good. Yeah, she is. She's transcendent. So we've talked about the, the female pleasure stuff, but there's also the dismissals of taboos around menstruation when um, she says she's got a period and he said he doesn't mind and he has the blood on her fingers and he, he tastes the blood and, and says it's nice or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was, yeah, I, I enjoyed that whole aspect of it. And I agree. Especially in the context of Oshima's 
filmography to date. Uh, well, so one thing we haven't really talked about is its style. Um, and it's sort of a little bit in that Oshima theatrical mode. Like it doesn't seem like it's striving for a, a gritty realistic portrayal of this story. It does feel like a stage. Yeah, a lot of the, the specific like in rooms that they have sex in are set up as sort of like, yeah, stagey or like performance spaces. So it, it feels like old fashioned Japanese historical films, but maybe it more specifically reminded me, maybe because it was in color, of the sort of Shaw Brothers Hong Kong uh, old old um, Chinese sort of sets that feel very stagey. The film green sort of felt like that to me a little bit. And there's a lot of focus on colors and lighting and colored lighting, in fact, on the characters um, and sort of lyrical falling snow and that sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. which which I think is an interesting choice to contrast that with the bluntness of the depiction of sex in that in that context, I think is interesting. Yeah, the theatrical sort of impulse to sort of run co- contrary to the realistic sex scenes. And I, I think he made a really good decision in not showing the aftermath of her act and just having that dealt with in the narration at the end of the film, not showing her like eventually being caught or anything like that. Cause I don't think that's, it's not really portraying her as falling. No. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't show, it's not like her act is portrayed as like a crime really. It's just like the, the sort of like culmination of their mutual desires essentially. Yes. Specifically her desires more than his. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't like, um, I feel like in some films that are like, Oh, this like sort of psychotic or like, um, perverse desires like you know obviously like wrong and bad but the the film doesn't do that at all despite her act being like really horrific <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't shy away from the horrificness either which is it's such a strange like emotional curve that sequence has because on like one hand it's like wow she's you know like, like really graphically castrated but on the other hand it's like this like um like release like it's it's just this amazing moment like it's i don't know like it kind of makes the entire film like worth it to me like the last the last like couple of shots and, and i just think it's it's really instructive to compare that depiction of of this particular character with so many other japanese films that deal with the, the fallen women trope especially mizoguchi in which we do get to see that we we do have to witness this ultimate downfall and victimizing of this female character at the hands of these sort of patriarchal institutions and just the fact that he chooses to just culminate the film in that scene yeah, it's almost like, but it's almost like it incorporates, uh, or it's almost like critical of that narrative by making it just into like voiceover in a way, because it's just the the sort of aftermath of the event is like related in this sort of like very dry. Like it almost feels like a television documentary or something like that. Yeah, like obviously, obviously she's not going to get away with it in the society at the time, but that's not really the point of this narrative. It's just no, well, it's, it's not just like a suspense a, film. It's not. No. It's not a film about a crime. No, it's not, and and it doesn't feel to me like a film about, well, a woman was, was, you know, caught having castrated her and killed her husband. Um, and she's on the run. How did that happen? Like, it doesn't feel like that's the point of the narrative. Like this, it, it's more about, uh, again, that thing that, that Oshima mentioned himself about the original crime, this very individual personal story that completely is at odds with the society around there. And there is a, a, a great scene in this, especially because of how um, disciplined Oshima is in, in how little he integrates this. But there's just that one scene where 
Fuji is just sort of walking back from somewhere and there's this military parade going through the streets. And we just get this one suggestion of the broader Japanese society and the militarism around it to contrast against this very personal individualist story. And it's like this like this like torrent of all these people marching in one direction. He's like walking in the other one. Yeah, casually walking in, in the other direction, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that it continues a theme that, I mean, is developed to some degree in uh, Diary of a Shinjuku Thief, actually, about like... Um, sexual liberation sort of being a political act unto itself. And the obviously the intersection of sex and death, which is very common in his work. It, 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 this, it, this film was so interesting because so many of his films, or I mean, pretty much all of them, are about, like, repression, right? And this film is, like, it's almost like the inverse of that. Like, neither of them are, like, repressed at all at the beginning. <laughs> it's just that the society around them is repressed to a degree. I don't know. It's interesting. It's it's like this weird like this is what's happened even in the the negative frames of all the other the negative spaces of all the other films. There's also kind of a parallel between this and Death by Hanging in the sense that that was also based on a real case that caught the public imagination at the time because the Korean guy who was not properly executed um, wrote about his exploits and, and it, that became something of a sensation. So maybe there's a, a similar kind of sympathy that uh, Oshima had with the people at the, the core of those stories. Although, you know, he's, he's never quite on the side of the characters he's portraying. But... Uh, I, I was watching I was watching something for the... Because um, I had the Merry Christmas and Lawrence Criterion release, right? And they talked with the... Um, this is a, slightly a digression, but uh, the screenwriter, the co-screenwriter of that film, uh, Paul Mayersberg, right? I think that that interview gets to something that I think is like really core. Cool, a lot of his films have been read as sort of like anti-humanist, right? Mm. And I feel like that is true to an extent, but his films are so. I think there, I, I think there's like a, a version of humanism that exists in them. You know what I mean? I agree. Where like he, by having this like very objective style, like he doesn't necessarily judge the characters, and like and 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 um, Paul Mearsburg compares him to Renoir. But I think a better comparison now is like Claire Denis to an extent, um, not in the, not even in terms of the because like he doesn't have the same like sensuality that she does, um, but I feel like his films are always very they portray their characters as non-judgmentally as possible, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, so so Maysberg, uh, I think he when he was talking about Renoir, he said that Renoir had a tendency to let the characters off the hook because. Having watched a couple of Renoir films, I don't necessarily agree with that, <laughs> but I see what he I see what he's getting at. The core of Renoir's approach is that every character has their own reasons for their actions, right? Well, yeah, but it's like a famous thing that Renoir said was just everyone has their reasons. And he, yeah, he compared that with Oshima's approach, except to, as much to say that that Oshima was not specifically letting his characters off the hook. He was standing at a distance and showing that everyone is coming from different perspectives, and there are all these things that you need to consider, but not necessarily saying, therefore, it's okay that this person does this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I do feel like In the Realm of the Senses feels somewhat less objective than some of his other films in that way, in as much as they're ever objective about the characters. <laughs> if he's on this side of any of the characters, it's the, it's the characters in this movie. Yeah, it feels, it feels more like that he's sympathetic with the sexual liberation at the centre of this film. I think that's true of Empire Passion and to some of the characters in Merry Christmas to Sir Lawrence too. So you respected this more than you loved it, per se. Yeah, but I, feel, I still think it's definitely, like, a pretty incredible film in general. 
I didn't find it as involving as maybe I wanted it to be. Uh, I know I know of its reputation and notoriety, but it was be- it was better than I expected it to be, even still. I feel like yeah, I feel like when you hear about this so much, it's just like oh man, it's so shocking and oh, it breaks so many taboos, you know. I, I well, I think it's a credit to this film that even if you're not shocked by the sex scene, which is hard to be in our day and age, um, it still works beautifully. There's one interview between Oshima. Uh, Fuji and Matsuda at, at uh, a French festival. Um, but what Matsuda says is that she felt this film was like a, a fulfillment of destiny for her. Wow. Because, because she had, she doesn't really elaborate. She only says that she had, uh, she was dealing with great insecurities prior to this film. And she thought that this film would be a good way of, of helping her deal with those insecurities, perhaps about her body. I'm not, not she doesn't really say anything specific but more just maybe just exposing like vulnerability on screen yeah i think she does acknowledge there was like a difficult shoot but that she found it rewarding from that perspective i mean i i can't imagine it wouldn't be Bobby, you're a bar of passion like it's going out of fashion at love and i excel let's kill your partner we'll live happily thereafter throw him down the Okay, so Empire of Passion is the film that Oshima made after In the Realm of the Senses using the same uh, French producer, Anatoly Dolma. And um, it's often viewed as a sort of thematic counterpart to In the Realm of the Senses. And it does, again, feature Tatsuyo Fuji. Yes, in a similar-ish role. He's a a worse person. Yes, yes. Uh, Anyway, so Empire of Passion tells the story of a former soldier played by Tatsuya Fuji, as I said, in a small village, uh, apparently at the turn of the, the century, the turn of the 20th century. Yes, but it's not really identified. No, it's not specified. This guy forces himself upon a married woman of his acquaintance who has taken his eye, and she's played by Kazuko Yoshiyuki. Which, if I can interrupt you real quick, uh, apparently both her and Tatsuya Fuji started a number of movies together and in the interview i watched she said something to the effect of tatsuya fuji is the actor i trust most in the world so uh, so sort of somewhat troublingly the initial rape turns into a passionate love scene and she appears to go from being tormented by his act to enjoying it yes troublingly <laughs> so they regularly begin seeing each other and having this this passionate love affair and the man convinces the woman to assist in murdering her husband and disposing of his body down a well, because apparently that's the only way. Yes, down a, down a, the way that makes it sound like is like a, just any old well, but like, uh, it's on this, like, the local landlords, like, it's like an abandoned well. Like, if you just throw someone down a well, they're going to be found pretty quickly, I think. Uh, so, uh, listener, if you're planning on murdering someone in uh, rural Japan... Uh, just make sure you're the well that you choose to dispose of their body is like on a, is a somewhat abandoned and there's a lot of them around. So that, yeah, so they strangle the husband, they, they drag his body to the well and throw him in. And then later the woman and wife of the murdered man gets visited by the ghost of the deceased and suspicions begin to circulate around the village uh, about his fate because they report sightings of this ghost as well. And the police begin sniffing around, notably one particular uh, inspector. Yes. And ultimately, they are found out and executed, if I can spoil that. 
How could you ruin the movie like that for the viewer? So what did you think of the film? Uh, I, I actually liked it quite a bit. Uh, I, I didn't like it as much as um, In the Realm of the Senses, I will say. I would say, I would say upon watching it immediately, I think I enjoyed it more than I liked In the Realm of the Senses. But upon some reflection, and maybe over the course of this podcast, I think I've come to appreciate In the Realm of the Senses a little bit more. I feel like In the Realm of the Senses is definitely a more audacious film, but... I think this film has a specific like visual poetry to it that I uh, was very taken by. Yeah, I think in contrast, so so there's a, there's a similar maybe um, stagey theatricality to, to some of the way it's shot yes. to a degree, but it breaks out of the mode of in the realm of the senses, which was largely based around these interior sets or at least courtyards of hotels. And the realm of the senses is a very claustrophobic film. And whereas this very deliberately breaks out of that. It's almost like the rural answer to the urban settings of in the realm of the senses. And we get these amazing picturesque shots of the local landscape that just are incredibly well shot. Yeah, which feel like out of a Kurosawa film, essentially. <laughs> so you know what, you didn't even say the fact that uh, in the other sisters were shot in the same sets as, or the same, like, uh, Watt as uh, Rashomon and uh, Ugetsu. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. But anyway, so yes, it has some very wonderfully composed images of the landscape. And <clears throat> it has sort of a dreamlike quality, I think, to the the way the, fil- the story plays out. It's, it's, a t- it's a style of Japanese ghost story. It's not necessarily going for pure horror or anything like that. That's more like a atmospheric, scary film. But I mean, I guess in terms of Oshima's style, he's similarly like he was in Realm of the Senses in that controlled mode. I mean, different at least from something like Diary of a Shinjuku Priest, for example. <laughs> Diary of a Shinjuku um, Priest. I think that's just you. Uh... Revealing how Diary of a Shinjuku Thief has gone to a film that you did not care for to the central uh, text in your origin. So this has a similarly controlled, somewhat lyrical style, uh, which again has a big focus on colour and lighting, uh, and as well as those stunning sort of outdoor sequences we, we talked about. There's, there's a special, uh, uh, specifically a um, recurring image that uh, where the, the camera is like placed at the like maybe like a couple of feet down the well and it's pointed out so that the rest of the screen is essentially like black and all you see is like the aperture of the well essentially and the characters like throwing stuff in it or doing whatever business they're doing outside of the well <laughs> that's just amazing it reminded me a lot of um death of death by hate actually um like how and i i feel like that i mean maybe i'm reading too much to it but uh i read an essay that like Essentially, I mean, there's specific shots that like sort of uh, correlate the noose at Death by Hanging to like the, you know, the circular Japanese flag. And I wonder if that was sort of the intention here, too, as like suggestive of like this underworld of like uh, desire and passion that like runs just below the surface of like Japanese society. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's just this ravishing image that just recurs over and over again. It's just amazing. And it's especially striking the way it shows the changing seasons. Yeah. And it obviously culminates in a scene in which um, the the two leads end up at the bottom of the well, digging for the body of the murdered husband and throwing mud on themselves. It's a very diarrhea-esque mud. I guess that's the culmination of their very elemental kind of love affair because they often, aside from the raw animal passion itself that is on display 
they uh, often make love outdoors in in the elements when they meet, and then they make love covered in mud after this particular scene and that sort of stuff. Yeah, they make love. <laughs> it just it just feels weird to be calling this making love. But yeah, I thought this one was incredibly affecting and effective. It is suggestive that um, his right preferred does to lead to like some sort of sexual liberation, which is pretty horrifying to consider. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, that, that's like the one element that's like troubling in this film. I mean, I found that I found that troubling to the point where I never quite get over it. was on side with the film. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to enjoy in this film. If you're able to deal with the problematic sexuality that sort of opens up. And I think it is an interesting counterpart to In the Realm of the Senses, because you've got this central couple whose passion sort of exists outside the bounds of the society at the time and in this case can't survive in that context but it's a bit different because it's more of a it's more of a ghost story fable it's not quite as uh uh yeah as i said like claustrophobic as into the realm of the and like in the sense that it also doesn't hold itself to the character's per- perspective like to the same degree as into in the realm of the senses does it's it's a little more detached from them and I think I think part of the reasons why the reason why I can seem troubling and problematic is that uh, because he is such an objective style mm. that, as he said, sort of like emphasizes the humanness and the non-judgmental approach to his characters. It, it can come off as not necessarily an endorsement, but not a condemnation of their like misogyny. Especially in the films where it's not necessarily the main focus or anything like that. Like it's just a, a part of their character casually. So the offhandedness can be a bit difficult to stomach, I think, sometimes. I agree. Um, but yeah, so Empire of Fashion, uh, I would say pretty good stuff. I think it's worth watching um, for what it does well. And it's interesting, there, there's one scene that I found like, really strange and compelling where the male character played by uh, Tetsuya Fuji is like throwing leaves into the well. And there's just, like, a voiceover, which has not been in the film at all, right? Except for in the beginning, right? And crucially, a female voiceover. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, which further complicates the film a little bit. But it's it's just this, like, strange... Like, it, it almost is, like, the perspective of Oshaman himself, in a way. Where she, like, sort of narrates his actions and, like, ascribes uh, psychological meaning to his actions. Or the the fact that he does not is not privy to his own psychology. It's weird. It's almost like the voice of the viewers are like that. It's just a technique that I found really compelling. And it does come back at the end and then makes the film more fable-ish in a way. I was reading one of his essays because uh, I got a collection of his from the library. And uh, this is something that did not occur to me at all. And I was like, whoa. Um, Oshima's own essays? Yes. Because um, he, he was like a cultural critic. And like this is something that they touched on. And I, I don't know how much veracity is in it. But in the, there's like a short documentary that was produced with, or that was shot. Um, it was like a... I don't know, like an interview, like it almost seems like a television report on Great Christmas of Sir Lawrence, where a lot of the principals and uh, Jeremy Thomas and Bowie and uh, Tom Conti are interviewed. And according to uh, Jeremy Thomas, like uh, Oshima, like essentially like was famous as an intellectual, additionally to being a film director, and he wrote a lot, and apparently he produced a lot of documentaries for television too, which is something that we lack access to entirely in the states. So we might view his films differently because we don't have access to that same bulk of conversation, you know? Anyway. 
Or like I was I was reading part of this other book about Japanese cinema, which is about some of the uh, experimental filmmakers in the 60s and 70s, um, which I'm forgetting the name of. But it talks about like the fact that he had like televised debates with like um, uh, uh, Yukio Mashima um, and like just the the image of him as a public intellectual is not something that translates at all. Um, but I forgot what we were talking about. Empire of Passion. Should we move on to... I'm a sexy soldier man I'm guilty about my bro I got caught in Indonesia They won't let me go I'm a fan of Christmas Though this isn't what I planned I can't be so merry when you bury me inside. So, uh, for the final issue of our Nagasa Oshima series, we'll be discussing one of his final films, in his first in a language other than the Japanese, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which happened to be the first Oshima film that I saw, and that which was basically the inspiration for me choosing him to be our inaugural series. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence's narrative is centered around the interrelationships that form between four men all of whom occupy one shot or another in a Japanese POW camp located in Java. Uh, John Lawrence, who's played by Tom Conti, a British officer who is fluent in Japanese and who attempts to act as a mediator between the Japanese and their British captives, is sympathetic broadly to the Japanese. Uh, Captain Yanoi, who's played by Ryuji Sakamoto, the commander of the camp, uh, who was a member of the ultra-nationalist Young Officers who attempted to overthrow the Japanese government on February 26, uh, 1936, albeit one who was spared the eventual fate of the group because he was serving in Manchuria and therefore feels a sense of shame around the fact that he was not executed with them. Uh, Jack Selliers, David Bowie, uh, who is a headstrong and rebellious British soldier who resists the structure of the camp and is haunted by his past, and Sergeant Hara, who's played by Takeshi Kitano, who is very strangely credited as just Takeshi in the English language, like, um, the translation of this film, um, who is, you know, a second-in-command and seems to be the, like, commander of the guard, who is by turns brutal and humane towards the British, British soldiers. The plot of the film is driven by Salyer's capture by the Japanese army, induction to the camp, and the strange, erotic, and spiritual obsession that Captain Inouye develops with him. The film is more concerned with mood and character than a traditional plot structure. Now, Hugh, to lay all the cards on the table, I think this film is a masterpiece, and easily my favorite film that Oshima directed. It occupies for me the rare nexus that manages to totally overwhelm my emotions, engage me on a deeper intellectual level. However, some critics see the film as a disappointing turn from Oshima's observational style towards a more conventional humanism, though the humanist quality of this film and the anti-humanist qualities of some of his other films is a subject open for debate. Now, my question for you, for you is this. Expecting you to find the film as haunting as I do is obviously a foolish position to take because the experience of watching it for me is impossible to separate from my feelings for its two stars, my love for the score, and the circumstances of my first viewing of it. But, all that being said, did the film work for you, and what place do you think does it rank in the Ashima canon? Uh, I think it's 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 certainly his most moving film uh, that has that ability to to connect on such a, a deep emotional level uh, in a way that uh, few of his other films approach, usually by design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of found this overwhelming by the end of it, uh, in a good way. Yeah, I think I think the final like 
uh, as soon as they get into the camp, and like as soon as they it, like the David Bowie has like his flashback, I just start like crying. Is it like? There are sort of sections of this film which I think are so sort of beautifully done that it basically steamrolls over any of the quibbles I have with the rest of the narrative. As an example, there's some structural things that I found a, a bit curious. And looking into more of the backstory, I kind of understand how it happened that way. So you mentioned like a flashback with Bowie's character who's playing Celius, the officer who, who Sakamoto's character becomes infatuated with. When he is imprisoned, uh, awaiting some uncertain grisly fate, uh, along with Lawrence, and they're on the other side of this divide and they're talking to each other about their respective pasts. Um, so Lawrence tells a story about when he met a woman in Singapore, I think it was, and had a brief affair with her. And Bowie then tells a story about his childhood and it cuts into this elaborate restaging of his childhood. And and you can, you can see the way it's set up to be this sort of, these parallel narratives between these two characters. Yeah. Um, and they actually had shot a recreation of, of, of Tom Conti's flashback and then end, ended up cutting it. And it's also part of the original novel upon which it's based, The Seed in the Sower. To me, I think it was probably the right decision to cut it. I agree. I don't think it needed it. And it's, it takes, it dilutes the focus, but it feels like it's missing, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, I Actually, if I can defend the choice a little bit, um, it, it feels like that moment doesn't define Lawrence's character to the same extent it defines Cellier's. You know. No, I I agree with you there. I can understand like it it wouldn't actually have strengthened the, the thematic side of the film. But do you think narratively it would have been a little more? No, no. But it it feels to me like exactly what happened. Like it feels to me like originally there was supposed to be something there and it was taken out. So you get this kind of lopsided scene where he does his reminiscence and we don't see it, and then Bowie does his and we see his lavish recreation of it. It's like we don't care about Lawrence, fuck Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bowie, which is fine. Like I mean, yeah. who wouldn't make that decision if you had to choose between Tom Conti and Bowie? <laughs> I, I think Tom Conti's like pretty great in this film. You mean Paddington Two's Tom Conti? He's in Paddington Two. He is. Really? So you know the judge who sentences. Paddington and, and gets the bad haircut initially yeah. when he first meets That's him. That's so I didn't even recognize him at all. So it was very different. It's very different to the idea of what I thought it was prior to this whole endeavor. Yeah. Uh, which I thought it was more of a conventional prisoner of war story. I'm so glad it isn't. Yeah. And it's almost like a, it's almost like an inversion of a typical prisoner of war story. It almost like it, it it's contained in the ellipses of a normal prisoner of war story, if that makes sense. Mm. Cause like there's sequences of like, like, you know, the, all the British soldiers being, you know, carted off to go do work, whatever, but it doesn't actually show their labor at all. And I, I feel like something like the Bridge of the River Kwai, which is like the, you know, like the, the typical example of a English prisoner of war camp in Japan film, like, is all about the labor and, like, the, the tragedy of these British lives being sacrificed to make this pointless thing, right? And the harsh brutality of the Japanese uh, regime that is... That is the, yeah, which this film does not shy away f- from at all. <laughs> but it actually explores both sides in a in a really different way than than we normally see. And it and it makes it makes them almost makes British and Japanese soldiers almost like parallel because like I mean in a sense like they're they're um, set up to be somewhat similar in that they're both like uh, imperial powers that are on the point of like collapse, right? And, like, it, it, part of the film's sense of, like, 
uh, tragedy, I guess, is informed by the historical knowledge that you bring into it. Um, not that the collapse of either the Japanese Empire or the British Empire was tragic. Um, so the we both watched that interview with Paul Meyerberg, who was um, tasked with helping Oshima with the screenplay. So Oshima had read the original book and written a draft of the screenplay, a long draft of the screenplay, and then employed Paul Meyerberg, who was uh, something of a critic, a yeah. film critic. Yeah. I'm not sure what his experience was with screenplays or anything like that prior to this film, but... I think he, I think he wrote Eureka, the... Or Nicholas, and he apparently wrote uh, the man who fell to earth too, which is maybe another reason why. And Meyerberg says that he he speculates one of the reasons why Oshima might have uh, thought of him was because they championed Oshima's films in in the magazine he wrote for. But anyway, so he was tasked with with sort of uh, helping Oshima with the script, especially the English language stuff, because at the time Oshima didn't really speak English. And the interesting thing about that interview was the fact that. He was already aware by that point that Bowie was going to be in the film. He acknowledged the fact that obviously Bowie is a limited actor. Like he doesn't have the same sort of scope that a normal actor will be able to bring to the role. He intentionally tailored the screenplay to Bowie's limitations as an actor. And uh, also the fact that Bowie had experience as as a mime. There's a great sequence of him miming his uh, shaving uh, before his, his like sort of fake execution. So wherever possible, he made... He, he made Bowie's character really express itself through gesture more so than specific lines or speeches or monologues, which might have been difficult for Bowie to get his teeth into. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they include the Salyers flashback, but not the the Warren's flashback. Like it's using like expressive techniques rather than like using like monologuing to, to get to the emotional center of it. Although on that point, I will say... Um, I found the the actual execution of the flashback a little bit clunky in the in the narrative of the film. I did it the first time, but this this time I watched it, I thought it was seamless. So, like, what I loved in the flashback was the song that the boy, the, yeah, it's, this little, it's great. His little brother um, sings this moving song, which is not actually written by Sakamoto, though he arranges it. And while he's just like pottering around the garden, watering plants, and it's just a lovely moment and really sort of lyrically shot. Um, but then it, it it sort of turns into this narrative where these two off-puttingly New Zealand kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a little bit strange that they're and they're not great actors like the little boy's pretty good the little boy's yeah, pretty good the, the, the older brother's, brother's pretty good yeah the brother's okay the older brother who is bowie at a younger age is not great there's no no he's not nor are the other kids that great but yeah there's, there's the one there's the one boy because uh, the the core of the flashback essentially revolves around this this event that that bowie's character feels like a great deal of shame over where um at, a, at like a public school um as part of like the hazy rituals he had the opportunity to exclude his brother from them because his brother is a hunchback, um, but he failed to do so for ambiguous reasons, right? For selfish reasons, like it's it's implied. Like he doesn't want, he didn't want to be, have his own reputation affected by... Yeah, he didn't want to, yes, yes. Um, and uh, his brother essentially gets, I don't know, like tortured. He almost gets like waterboarded in a way. And he um, never he re- never sings again, and he has a beautiful voice as, it, as it's shown. But that has like traumatized him. Yes, um, but there's one boy in that scene. He's like positioned like right behind the actor, who is basically just cast because he's a fr- threatening face. And I just kept on being distracted by this like one teenage like malignant teenager. But I mean that needs to be in the narrative. Like that's a really crucial part of Bowie's character. 
because it parallels Sakamoto, um, who went through his own sense of shame and, and Bowie has like a comparable sense of guilt for what happened to his brother. And Meyerberg talks about this, the, the parallels in the characters. So the obvious one obviously is Sakamoto and Bowie, but also the fact that uh, Lawrence and Hara played by Takeshi Kitano have that parallel of the more, of the more grounded workaday kind of characters trying to do their best in the, the situations they're put in. Yeah. And just doing their, jobs essentially yeah. and uh, we should say like i think all four of like the central actors are just like great like they all just seem perfectly uh their performances seem perfectly suited to the roles that they're playing how smart Meyerberg was to to write bowie in the way he did as, as we already talked about really makes him come off without a hitch essentially like he he, he functions like his his limitations of an actor is the fact that he's often doesn't feel like he's completely inhabiting the character right and there's like there's a kind of elusive quality to his presence, and here that that it works in its favor. What's well, so appropriate for the the theme too? He's almost like a mythic character in a way, and so he's so Sakamoto. Um, but I really enjoy the sort of extra textual element of casting a interesting avant garde pop musician uh, from Japan against the against the Western equivalent of Bowie. And also the idea, which I think is is true in real life as well, that they would have a mutual admiration for one another's work. And I know certainly Sakamoto talks about the fact that he did, he was a fan of Bowie. Yeah. So just the that scene of them first meeting, it's I just love how that parallels the real world so nicely. But I love the technique of that scene too, where it's just like this, it's sort of this like long shot of because it's set up as as Bowie's on trial for. <laughs> Sellers is on trial, whatever. The character is on trial for, uh, for basically staging like a guerrilla campaign against the Japanese army. Um, and it, it just starts with this like wide shot that's been repeated a couple of times, right? Of the the place where the judges are. I don't know what you call that. And so it's, it's set up as like a three shot, right? Of them um, from like... And it's like the camera's like behind Bowie, but it's just like this slow push on and on um, Sakamoto's face as he like comes to this like awareness in a way. I don't know. It's just a great, it's just a great shot. <laughs> and of the, of the um, respective actors' personal life, it, they, there's also that androgynous element as well. Because with Sakamoto's makeup, which he did also wear sort of similar things in Yellow Magic Orchestra. Uh, and obviously Bowie's reputation for affecting and an androgynous look plays into this film really interestingly as well yeah, especially it, with i guess the it complicates the sexuality homoerotic subtext yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is funny that uh <laughs> i mean in that interview it's like ashima denied the fact like that was really funny because <laughs> like it's so evident in the film i mean maybe it's just us reading into it but i don't know <laughs> yeah well um ashima says this is like a connection that happens between soldiers who were like always operating on the precipice of death um this is the the type of connection that can happen and uh Meyerberg, like smartly again said people are going to pick up on this as a homoerotic subtext so we need we need to acknowledge it somewhere so they added the scene in which um Takeshi Kitano makes a reference to all the British soldiers being queers as he says I keep touching on because that interview with Paul Meyerberg was so good that um I, I'm remembering all the points from it but um, they sort of keep ambiguous the idea of what... I mean, the way Bowie dies, you don't necessarily specifically see much beyond the fact that he's about to die. Or No, I mean, it doesn't actually show his 
death at all. No, and you don't see the what happens to uh, Sakamoto's character. Yeah, you know, there's like an intimation at the during the last sequence that maybe he was executed or something like that. And um, what Meyerberg said about that was the fact that so by the end of the film, when we get this final scene, which final very moving scene um, between Takeshi Katano and Lawrence, when Lawrence visits uh, Katano in prison before he's about to get executed, Katano is like. So- so amazing in this film. He is. Um, it's kind of like they have gone on beyond the sort of earthen realms of, of these two characters who are more grounded and prosaic in many ways than the mythical kind of characters that Sakamoto and Bowie kind of represented. Yeah, for sure. And I thought that was really effective because you don't really you don't get to see their end, so you don't really know what, what what's happened to them in a concrete way. And it's 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 reminiscent of um, the ending of Empire of Passion too. That's true. Yes, because that's only covered in the narration. Yeah, and the way it's it's sort of narrated is it's sort of like oh, it's there was like rumors that they were executed or something like that. Did you enjoy the callback to In the Realm of the Senses? I did. Yeah, I wrote that down actually because I, I don't think I noticed that the first time. <laughs> so we should explain that. So while in the scene that we talked about earlier, in which in which Tom Conti and David Bowie are sort of exchanging personal histories. And Tom Conti mentions that one of them involves a woman. Uh, so <laughs> Bowie, in order to like deflate it a bit, just says, oh, it sounds like she cut it off. <laughs> so <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> it was just revealed that Lawrence had been castrated. No, it should it should have showed like a close-up of Tom Conti's face, like looking like shocked, and then it cuts to this horrific flashback of his penis being <laughs> just, no, just that's the entirety of of in there all this it is with uh with his face yeah. composite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have to, we have to... That's a tweet. That's a tweet right there. <laughs> is it? That literally no one will appreciate. <laughs> but no, what we have to do is is a recut versions of the film. Or yeah, I guess there's a YouTube clip that we could make. Yeah. Again, yeah, that only we will appreciate. Uh, but yeah, I think this I think this film is remarkable, and it's it's easily my favorite Austin film, and I love it, and I'll watch it a hundred more times before I die. I think it's the easiest Austin film to love. Yeah, it's it's the one that is least. <laughs> has the least problematic elements. Let's put it like that. <laughs> um, uh, I like the... Uh, just love that scene. The scene of of Bowie when he walks out from the ranks of the gathered soldiers. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. And kisses Sakamoto on his cheek. And it, it's all, it also has this, like, uh, surrealistic... Because, like, I don't know, it's like, it's like this weird dreamscape that... I mean, the film... It is, because the, the way he leaves and no one stops him feels like it's beyond reality. Yeah. And no one reacts to. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole film has that sort of quality to it, uh, to a certain degree. Did you did you cry? Yeah. At that, uh, the, the film? Yeah, I, cry, I cried at several points. <laughs> I did too, and, and I was just watching the documentary, and even when it would just play the theme, I would not, I'd basically cry. <laughs> like, fuck, this is... This really gets to me. <laughs> but it's like the soundtrack is like it's so amazing. So so officially, officially, well, essentially, Bowie was cast before any of the other actors were cast. Yes, and then and then, Oshima came across a book that had these black and white photos of notable um, Japanese musicians, and he found he found a bunch of pictures of Osh- of uh, Sakamoto in this book. 
uh, who has a striking, very handsome face. And he cast him in the film just based on that. It's almost like David Wedgie. <laughs> and then he went to visit Sakamoto to ask him if he wanted to be in this film. Um, Sakamoto was a fan of Ashima, so it was like a really big deal to him. And although uh, Sakamoto was in awe of the request and was a fan of, of Ashima, he, he for some reason found the courage to say, I will only be in this film if you let me also do the soundtrack, <laughs> do the score for it, which is amazing. And Ashima was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's funny what he reveals about like the, the sort of typical practice of making scores for Japanese films at the time too i wonder if that was true of i mean obviously it's not true for every film but uh, apparently the, the typical practice was just like make music like a couple of days before the film was released yeah a really short lead time to to get the score together whereas in this case sakamoto was able to get three months yeah. which was which is a huge luxury. which is oh the the perfect amount of time to create the greatest film score of all time <laughs> Which doesn't seem like, uh, it's certainly not a long amount of time in the context of uh, modern filmmaking, Western practices. For sure. Um, but I, I like that he's kind of like abashed by the score to a degree too. But it's like, <laughs> there's, there's a specific thing where he's like, oh, I was basically just like copying Pacey by score to different images, right? <laughs> and like, I, I don't know, the, it's such a, it's just so great. <laughs> I just can't even like, like the theme is just, it's just so uh, mysterious and beautiful and moving. <laughs> All on its own. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the theme is... So he wanted to, to evoke Christmas somehow in the theme because obviously of the, the title of the film and, and that forms part of the plot. Um, so he wanted to use bells, but he didn't want it to feel like a European Christmas song necessarily. So he approximated Asian bells, gamelan using his synthesizer, I think he just sampled the sound. I think it was actually like the sound of like wine glasses or something. Yeah, that's I got the same impression too. From what it was a bit confusing exactly what he what he meant, but um, I think he's just sampled something that was supposed to approximate the the sound of Asian bells as opposed to that. But he didn't want it to be specific to like the location which is set in Java in Indonesia or specific necessarily to to Japanese music so it kind of has this exotic otherworldly feel for all concerned it's not just not just the English characters taken out of their element um, and put in Asia it's 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 different for everyone else it's like this different realm almost and the the other thing that was really interesting about that interview is that he discovered that um, a town in Switzerland actually uses the melody as what the church bell plays <laughs> in the middle of the day or whatever <laughs> This sounds like a pretty fucking haunted church, if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> so it ended up being like the ultimate um, European church song. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny. I feel like we just go on about this movie forever, but uh, do you think that'll, that draws our discussion of Merry Christmas and Storm to a close, and also our time with Mr. Oshima to a close as well? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to say about either Merry Christmas and Storm or about uh, Nagisa Oshima as a whole. Are you are you happy that we decided to choose him as our sort of inaugural stab at this? Yeah, I, I'm. I really appreciate having the experience of learning about his filmography because I was only, you know, I was only superficially aware of In the Realm of the Senses, and I had a distant memory of enjoying Taboo and a distant memory of watching Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. But that was the entirety of my knowledge of of his filmography. Yeah, it's really so. interesting 
visiting the films of someone who has such a reputation as like a certain figure and like seeing how uh, those films match and complicate the sort of like mythic image of the auteur. What if I like had you introduce, like when I'm editing this, I have you introduce Hold the Dark and then I just cut in all the positive things that aren't plot specific about Mr. Lawrence and just print that as the episode. <laughs> I would kill you. And include me saying, no, I didn't like Hold the Dark. It's a bad film. And you're like, no, actually. <laughs> That's a master for me, though. It's one of my favorite films. <laughs> the score is great. And then include all your non-specific comments about Hold the Dark and apply them to Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's like, oh, such the soundtrack as well. Oh, so bad. <laughs> I, would, I would literally kill you. <laughs> and then just add some diarrhea sound effects and then wrap it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so so what what do you wanna like do an impression of Takeshi Kitano speaking the title of the film? Yes, yeah. I do. That that one scene is like talk about fucking crying moments. I mean, Jesus Christ! <laughs> and the freezer thing is just so like, well, great. I guess I'm just gonna be fucked up for the rest of the day. I mean, maybe it feels a little bit not ham fisted, but maybe a, a little bit on the nose, perhaps. But it works so well. Just that that closing scene and the the dialogue of they're both just victims of men who thought they were right at the time and it's it really just goes beyond whatever cultural differences there are and anything like that and it's just like yeah that's what it is yeah i'm gonna uh let's start talking about it too much i'll start crying again because it's how would you, okay? Let's let's do you want to talk about like the are the like best and worst Ashima films, or do you think we've covered that enough? Let's pointlessly rank them. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. All right, my number nine is the Pleasures of the Flesh, uh, which has some really amazing optical effects, but uh, is otherwise uninteresting. Uh, my number nine is, of course, Diary of a Shinjuku what? Thief. What? The film that you hated? You put that at the bottom? Which I, which I thought was largely garbage, although it is redeemed to some extent by one good sequence. Okay. Which was the one in the bookstore at night. Uh, my number eight is A Street of Love and Hope, which uh, I thought was just fine. <laughs> and wasn't is that it a town or a street? I can't remember. It's... Been translated as both. The one on Letterbox it says the street, but I think the version on Filmstruck said the town. So, so that's your number eight. Wow, I like that more than that. And my number eight is Pleasures of the Flesh. Pretty, it's the most forgettable of, of the films that I've seen of Oshima's, uh by some margin. Uh, so it just didn't register as much for me. But it wasn't terrible. None of his films are terrible, besides <laughs> for you, Diarrhea and Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, my number seven is Cruel Story of Youth, which I just like the rhythms and how cruel and mean of a film it is, I guess. My number seven is also Cruel Story of Youth. What? Mm. Once again, for the depictions of... What? What are you talking about? <laughs> anyway. Um, my number six is your favorite one, uh, Dire Mission Jiggy Thief. Jesus. Which I think uh, is maybe not a film that coheres into much. Maybe not a film. Maybe so, not a film. But I think it is as a radical attempt to make a essayistic pseudo-narrative film, uh, 
it, it's the effort is enough for me. I think it has some really amazing sequences and some insufferable ones. And the treatment of sexual violence is probably the most concerning of all the Ashima films that we watched. But it has some really arresting and uh, memorable sequences to me. Anyway, like that scene where they get arrested at, at the end. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I I know that you're joking, but I think that scene is amazing. So fuck you. My number six is A Town of Love and Hope, which is his first film. It's a simple direct story, and I thought it was well told. Yeah, whatever. So I was I was quite happy. Yeah, fucking with that film. Fucking shit, or like <laughs> it's more like a, a shit of love and shit. Good one, good one. Thank you. All right. Perfectly parodied. Uh, my number five is Empire of Fashion, which we talked about. So my number five is Empire of Fashion, which we talked about. Uh, my number four is In the Role of the Senses, which we talked about. <laughs> my number four is Death by Hanging, which we did also talk about because yeah. we've talked about all of them. But not uh, recently. But anyway, I, I think that's a that's a really bracing, interesting film. Um, my number three is Death by Hanging, for the reasons you said, and for just how audacious it is. <laughs> my number three is In the Realm of the Senses, which I really enjoyed as discussed my number two is Night in Fog in Japan which is a marvelous 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 film my number two is Night in Fog uh-huh. in Japan which is a <laughs> so... great 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 film <laughs> uh, so I had both our number ones is apparently Merry Christmas to <laughs> so there you go so I would say is like a unified stylistic achievement Night in Fog in Japan is probably superior, but I don't think anything rivals the highs of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And certainly nothing is nearly as moving yeah, uh, as that, that film. So because of how good, how good it is in aspects of, of that film, I can't not put it as number one. You can't deny it. Can't deny it. Yeah. And the I, theme, the score. <laughs> yeah, the score is just, it's just, it's just the best. <laughs> Okay, wait. I think we. I think we've. I think we've done our our longest podcast. <laughs>